We're in Acts chapter 25. If you remember, Paul's been persecuted, almost killed by the Jews in Jerusalem, including two assassination attempts. He's been arrested, nearly tortured by the Romans. He was shipped off to Caesarea, tried by the corrupt governor Felix. He was held in custody unlawfully for two years. He then was tried before Governor Felix, who was seemingly more interested in appealing or appeasing the Jews than providing justice to Paul. And that kind of brings us to this morning, what? A couple of weeks here that uh, Paul has had. Now, recognizing this and the fact that he was not going to get a fair trial, Paul appealed to Caesar. It was a right that every Roman citizen had, and they could do this before their trials, actually. Um, if you were a Roman citizen and you didn't feel you were going to get a fair trial, you could appeal directly to Caesar. And that's what Paul did. So he went ahead and um, he's now waiting because Festus has agreed to send Paul up to Nero, who was the Roman emperor at this time. But he's got a dilemma because he doesn't really know what he's supposed to send along in way, by way of charges. And so fortunately for him, King Agrippa and his sister-slash-queen-slash-wife, mistress, whatever she was at the time, show up. And so he lays it before King Agrippa and basically says, I need your help. And so King Agrippa agrees, and that really is what leads us to our passage this morning. Paul is going to stand before um, King Agrippa and Bernice, as well as some other Roman officials. He's going to present his case to him and then ultimately wait to hear what Agrippa has to say. And so Festus, as we jump into this passage right now, Festus establishes this hearing before King Agrippa. And it was quite an ordeal. If you look at uh, Acts chapter 25, verses 23 through 27, we'll start there. It says, So on the next day when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present, uh, present with us, you see this man about whom all the people and the Jews appealed to me both at Jerusalem and here loudly declaring that he ought to not live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet, I have nothing definite about him to write to my lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I might have something to write. For it seems absurd to me to send a prisoner, or in sending a prisoner, not to indicate also the charges against him. I'm going to be like Luke here and use some understatement. This wasn't some small ordeal. In fact, if you notice here, it says that King Agrippa and his wife Bernice arrived with great pomp. You're familiar with the phrase pomp and circumstance, I suppose. It's often associated with graduation ceremonies. In fact, if I understand correctly, that's actually the name of the song that they usually use when people or when the graduates come into their graduation ceremony. Now, pomp has two primary definitions. One is good and one is bad. It can refer to a dignified or a magnificent display, splendor, and it's used in a very positive way to refer to that. But it can also refer to a vain or ostentatious display, which is the negative use of it. Now, this is really the only place that this word is used in the New Testament, so based on its usage in the New Testament, we really don't know if in this case it's really good or bad. All we know is that as, as King Agrippa and as Bernice entered this assembly that it was a huge, I'll, I'll say, I can't say pompous because that sounds bad, but a huge display of pomp and circumstance. It was a huge deal. 
All the important people were there. The king and his queen were there. The top military commanders were there. The word that's used for these commanders meant that each one commanded at least a thousand men. This was the top brass of the military that was in attendance. In addition to that, it says all the prominent men of the city. So politicians, leading figures, probably businessmen. So this was a pretty huge deal. You can imagine what that must have looked like. I think of a political convention in some respects, you know, with all the stuff. And so that's what this turns out to be. After bringing Paul into the auditorium, Festus addresses the group and he asks them for their help. Notice that he says here that the Jews would appeal to him and were demanding Paul's death. It says that they had loudly declared that Paul ought not to live any longer. He shares that with the group. However, he had determined himself and he admits this to the group. I couldn't find anything that Paul did wrong. Nothing of deserving death. So he basically lays out before this grandiose event the crux of why they're all there. He had a dilemma. Paul had appealed to the emperor and he had agreed to send him. However, he's got no idea. Notice in the text here, he says, For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. What a dilemma this man was in. Now, we don't really know why. You might, we might basically um, ask the question at this point, why didn't Festus just simply declare Paul innocent and send him on his way? He wouldn't be in this position. Some have argued that when a prisoner or somebody who's being charged with a crime, when they appealed to Caesar, that the governor had no option but to honor that and send him. He couldn't deny that request. And there's enough evidence to suggest that's probably the case. But... There's also some evidence that suggests that if it wasn't necessary, that they wouldn't have to do that. So it's really unclear. I would, I would propose that there's probably another more reasonable explanation as to why he didn't just declare Paul innocent. And it's found in something that Luke wrote back in chapter 25, verse 9. Jump back there with me just briefly. Chapter 25, verse 9, notice that it says, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on all these charges? Festus was wishing to do the Jews a favor. The statement was also made about Felix, his predecessor. He also wished to do the Jews a favor, which is why he left Paul in prison, or in confinement, we'll say, for two years. He also knew Paul wasn't guilty. He came up with a ruse of, Well, I'll have the commander come and we'll talk to him, the guy that arrested him. We'll see what he has to say. So just wait here, Paul. But he knew that the commander wasn't coming. The commander had written him a letter. There was no intent to come. There's no indication in the text that he had summoned the commander. It was a ruse to leave Paul in prison for two years for two reasons. One, he was seeking a bribe. The second was, he just wanted to keep the Jews happy. Wanted to appease them. And I'll be real frank, it's understandable. It's not right, but it's understandable. Primary responsibility of the governor at this time, this first century, was to keep the peace between the Jews and the Romans. There were a number of rebellious uprisings by the Jews against the Romans. They were treated harshly. They didn't have the freedoms that they needed. And Felix himself had put down a couple of these. In fact, the commander had mentioned an a individual, an Egyptian Jew, that had raised up over 4,000 rebels, taken them outside the city with plans to attack the city and overthrow the Romans. And so there was high tension between the Jews and the Romans at this time. The Jews didn't like the Romans. The Romans didn't like the Jews. And so these governors were always in the very difficult spot of having to sort of juggle that to prevent more uprisings. And then when uprisings did occur, to be able to put down those uprisings without being too harsh. Remember that Felix was known for being harsh. 
the way he responded to the Jews. And it actually caused tensions to increase even more. In fact, Josephus had said that he was the primary reason for the rising up of the tension between the Jews and the Romans. And so it's understandable that here Festus is thinking, man, what happened? If I let Paul off, if I let him go, the Jews aren't going to be happy. They may rise up. There may have also been some personal selfish political motives in that. Every Roman governor, like every American politician, loves to climb the ladder, right? How many senators or congressmen wouldn't love the opportunity to run for presidency fast? Some wouldn't, but you know what I'm getting at. You know, it's rare in politics for somebody to start at a city council level and not have other aspirations sometimes. And so a governor like this would also understand that, boy, if I don't get this right, it's going to come back down on me. Felix was actually removed from his role as governor. He was then tried and convicted because of the way that he abused the Druze and the corruption while he was governor. In fact, the only reason he was spared death was because he had a brother who happened to know the emperor. And it may have been that Festus, looking back at that, thinking, not going to happen to me. And so he's in this dilemma now. I can't let Paul go. What am I going to do? I've got to send him up to Rome, but I don't have any charges. So he's asking this group and all this pomp and circumstance here, all this big event, he's asking him for help. So Paul gets the opportunity now, not just to defend himself, but to provide a personal testimony. We've talked about that before. That so often as we look at Paul, and he's got charges against him, or he's facing accusations, false accusations, or he's being persecuted, Paul always seemed to emphasize more the ability to share the gospel and provide his testimony than he did his own defense. There's an element of his defense. He does defend himself. But we're going to see today that this isn't just an opportunity. Paul doesn't just look at these men as, I now have an opportunity to defend myself and gain my freedom. Instead, Paul sees it as an opportunity to share his testimony. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 25, and we'll see how Paul starts. He actually begins with the expected honor and formality due any dignitary, and he maybe throws in a little bit of flattery here as well. Look at 1 through 6. We can learn something from this on how we treat those who are maybe persecuting us or not being fair with us. Verse 20, or chapter 26, verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. That's the word for apologia. In regard to all things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul says that he considers it fortunate to have an opportunity to defend himself before King Agrippa. How many of us, if put in his position, would be thinking, this is a fortunate opportunity to be able to defend myself, to be able to now provide my testimony before those who hold my very life in some respects in their hands? I don't know, that probably wouldn't be my response, but it's Paul's. It's fortunate. Now, there may be a little bit of flattery in this, but I, knowing what we know of Paul, probably more reality from his heart that he did see this as being a fortunate opportunity. Notice that he says, that he would, or that um, as he's permitted to speak here, as he stretches out his hand and as he is accused by these Jews and considering it fortunate, that he sees this especially important because of the customs and the questions among the Jews are all something that Agrippa would be familiar with. Agrippa had a familiarity, a knowledge of all the stuff that had been happening. 
Remember, he wanted to hear Paul because he had heard about Paul. So Paul, partly as he looks at Agrippa, sees this as fortunate because he's at least familiar with what had been happening. In fact, we're going to find out later that he was an expert in Jewish things because he was not only a Jew himself, but because he was a scholar. The last thing we see here with Paul is that he does ask Agrippa to be patient with him as he lays out his case. And so Paul, as we look at this, is about ready to begin speaking, sees it as a fortunate opportunity because he's standing before somebody that might be able to understand. But in addition to that, he's hoping for some patience. It's likely that this is a summary of what Paul taught. Paul probably went into greater detail here. And he was thankful for an opportunity that he had somebody that would be willing to listen to him. And we're going to see that Agrippa does. He gives Paul the opportunity to speak. Remember what happened the last time Paul stood before a high priest? As soon as he opened his mouth and said, basically, I didn't, before the words are out of his mouth, the high priest commands that Paul be punched in the face. So here we are, and Paul gets ready to speak, and we're going to find out that rather than a defense, what Paul does is he presents an explanation of his life and his ministry. He provides his testimony. And in this testimony, we're going to see that he makes four declarations. And this will be the heart and soul of what we're here for this morning. Our takeaways will come primarily from these four declarations that Paul makes. The first declaration that he makes is that he had always lived his life as a faithful Jew. Paul was a religious man. He always believed in God. But beyond that, he was faithful as a Jew to the things that he knew from the Old Testament. Look at verses 4 and 5. So then all the Jews know my manner of life and from my youth up which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee among, or a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And so Paul starts by basically declaring that I've been a faithful Jew my whole life. He says all the Jews knew this about me. Paul was not an unknown man in Jerusalem. Remember, he was raised by Galileo in many respects, the most prominent Jewish theologian probably in Jewish history. So he was trained by the best. He was a Pharisee, and obviously the Pharisees are well known. In fact, Paul may have very well been one of the most famous Pharisees, partly because of his persecution against the church. He was well known among the scribes and the Sanhedrin. There's some speculation that he may have been a member of the Sanhedrin because there's a point at which Paul says that he was able to cast a vote, something the Sanhedrin did. It's not clear whether or not he really was or not. But Paul was not some unknown Jew. He was a well-known Jew, and he was known for basically being a very strict, Bible-believing, Bible-obeying Jew. In fact, he says, if the Jews were willing to testify about that, they would. But the last thing in the world any of the Jews wanted was to present Paul as a faithful Jew. So Paul begins his testimony by saying, look, I, I've been a faithful Jew. The second declaration that Paul makes is that he was on trial for one thing. And that one thing was his hope in God's promise. Look at verses 6 through 8. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. And they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? This hope was something that God had promised, Paul says, to their forefathers. 
He says that this hope was something which Israel itself, the 12 tribes, sought to attain. It was something they were hoping for. It was a hope which caused them to earnestly serve God, he says, night and day. So what is this hope? Paul reveals it with his rhetorical question in verse 8. Look at what he says. Why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? This is actually a precursor of what Paul is going to talk about later in verses 22 and 23. It's an interesting question, considering that most of this audience was Greek, not Jewish. And the Greeks didn't believe in a resurrection. When you were dead, you were dead. There were really only, probably, two people that we know probably understood resurrection and accepted resurrection of the dead. King Agrippa and Bernice. The rest of this audience was hostile to that idea. For many, it probably was foreign. But Paul lays it all out right here, before the Greeks, before King Agrippa and Bernice. This trial is really about one thing, my hope in resurrection, something that we Jews have believed through our whole, our whole history. It's something we've hoped for. It's something we've longed for. It's something we work for day and night, is a resurrection. Why should it shock anyone that is a faithful Jew that I have that hope? And that's the reason I'm being tried here today. It's the foundation of Jewish faith. In fact, we saw not too long ago, Paul, as he was standing before the Sanhedrin, before the council, he had the Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection, but a far larger group of leaders, the Pharisees, did. So Paul shouts out in the middle, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. And they start arguing among one another and everything else. So Paul makes it clear that that's what this is really about. His belief, his hope, his commitment to the resurrection of the dead. I think about that when we think about any number of Christians who have been tried or challenged, persecuted because of the Christian businesses, whether it's photography or cake or other things. While their business may not ultimately be to promote the resurrection of the dead, they're just trying to run a business by Christian principles. Ultimately, in the end, when they're hauled in or they're tried, what is at the heart and soul of that is one simple thing. They're Christians, and their hope is in the resurrection. That's what makes us Christians. I posted something on Facebook the other day because there's a church in town. I'll let you guess who it is that every year posts these big rallies and big events for their youth uh, for Paul, or for Good Friday and then for Sunday Easter. And I'll be real honest, they're repugnant. It's disgraceful. This year, they're having a popping party on Friday night. What a great way to celebrate the death of Jesus Christ is to have a big celebration with, you know, a party for the youth with popcorn and you know, places to jump in pits and all that kind of stuff. No mention of the importance of the death, burial, and ultimately the resurrection. And then on Sunday morning, advertising a giant trampoline party, extreme trampoline event and everything else to celebrate Easter. And I'm thinking, no wonder the youth are abandoning the church in droves. It's a circus, absolute circus. It's about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's at the heart and soul. And so Paul, as he is standing before this group, makes it absolutely clear that what this is about is I have hope in the resurrection. The hope of every, should be, the hope of every faithful Jew. His third declaration is that his life ultimately changed when he was confronted by the resurrected Jesus. Look at verses 9 through 11. So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities now, Paul gets to the heart of the matter here, even though he was a faithful Jew, and even though now he's being tried and persecuted because of this hope he has in Jesus Christ, it wasn't always that way. There was a time where Paul believed that to protect the Jewish faith, to stand on the side of God, he had to stomp down this sect of the Nazarites, the group called the Way Christians. He thought he was doing God a public service, if you will, to protect the integrity of the Jewish Faith. I like the way the NIV translation reads. I was, or I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's often the way religion works, isn't it? You know? I can think of all kinds of religions that have all kinds of means and methods of salvation, and there are some that get aggressive. I think about what's happening in parts of the Middle East right now. Um, Open Doors just published an article the other day about, I think, I don't know, some part in northern Africa, I don't remember the exact country, um, Nigeria maybe, I don't remember, but where another group of Christians were dragged out and put to death because they saw them as a threat to their religion. And we see that throughout the world. Persecution of Christians, the number of Christians being killed, persecuted, is growing exponentially around the world. We now have 140 countries that have been labeled as um, persecutors of Christians, state governments, and, and other things. That number has grown from just 40 three, four decades ago. And generally it's driven by people who think they're on God's side, who think they're protecting their religion, and that Christ and Christianity is a threat to that. And Paul was in the same boat. So he ran around and he imprisoned saints under the authority of the chief priests. He voted to put them to death. He punished them in the synagogues. He tried to force them to blaspheme, to reject Jesus Christ. And he did it not just in Jerusalem, but he did it in other parts of the world, outside of Jerusalem. But then something unexpected happened to Paul. He was confronted with the resurrected Jesus, and he was given a new mission. Everything changed when he met Jesus Christ. Look at verses 12 through 15. While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So basically, this encounter was a direct confrontation of Paul over his persecution, not just of Jesus, but the church. You know what a goad is? It was a stick, usually made of sharp wood or a, some kind of iron. It was basically used to poke <laughs> at oxen, and it was basically to keep them moving. And so the last thing that an ox would want to do if you poked him and tried to get him to move was to push back against it. Why is that? It hurts. So this became a euphemism for being stubborn, to being resistant. Some people interpret Jesus' words here, this idiom, to mean that it was futile for Paul to resist God. It was impossible for Paul to resist God, so he might as well just jump on board. That may be, or plenty of Calvinists that would suggest that as well. 
However, the word hard here is actually used to refer to things that are harsh or unpleasant. So there may be another meaning intended here. And I probably camp more on this side. Obviously, I do believe that when God wants something done in his sovereignty, it happens, clearly. But he also gives us free will and free choice. So here, like I said, this word is more often used to refer to things that are harsh or unpleasant. And if we interpret it that way, it's likely what Jesus is saying is, Paul, you're hurting yourself by resisting. You're pushing back against me. I think about Proverbs that says the way of the difficult, or the way of the wicked is difficult. It is hard. I think about Jonah. Think about Jonah. Jonah, I want you to go. Jonah says no. And what happens? He ends up in the belly of a fish. It was difficult for Jonah. Didn't have an easy life when he decides, I'm going to push back. I'm not going to do it, Lord. I think about Balaam. Remember Balaam? He was unsaved, but he was a prophet. And he really wasn't a false prophet. Many people say he was a false prophet, but no, he prophesied correctly. But the problem is, there was one point where he decided he wasn't going to prophesy what God said to prophesy. He was going to go and curse Israel because somebody hired him to do that. And what happens to Balaam as he decides to do that? Remember the story of the talking donkey? He's along the way. This donkey does him a favor, but it wasn't comfortable. Crushes his foot against the side of the canyon. He gets a lesson from the Lord, who basically puts an angel in front of him. The donkey can see it, he can't. And we see that routinely in the scriptures, that when Israel resisted God, it what? It got difficult. Think how many times in the book of Judges, Israel resisted the Lord, turned against the Lord, refused the Lord, and the Lord would bring upon them their oppressors, and they would pay the price, and they would beg, beg and cry out for him. But God never forced Israel to obey. It was their choice. That's why he chastises, to try to bring about their willing choice to serve him. But God doesn't force anybody to obey. And so I believe that what Jesus is telling Paul here is when he speaks to him, he's like, Paul, you realize your resistance, not that it's futile, which maybe it was, but rather life is difficult, Paul. When you push against me, when you resist me, it's harsh. Again, I love the way the NIV puts it. You're hurting yourself, Paul. Now again, maybe it can be understood here as, Paul, you're going to do what I tell you to do. But again, that doesn't seem to be the character of God. God wants a willing obedience. So he warns Paul. And ultimately, Paul makes a choice, doesn't he? Paul's life changes as a result of this interaction with Jesus. In fact, it actually began a new mission for Paul. Notice that it says here that as he was going about... As he was on this mission, is when this happened, and he leaves this encounter now on a new mission. His first mission was to really destroy the church, to persecute Christians, to protect what he thought was Judaism. But ultimately, the mission that God now calls him to is to save Judaism. Look at verses 15 through 18. And I said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I don't know that we quite grasp what Paul must have at that moment realized. You're a faithful Jew. You believe in Judaism. You believe in the law. You have your understanding of all that. And you're out persecuting those who are challenging that. You've got these guys that are claiming this dead guy that you saw put on a cross, crucified, laid in a tomb, and guarded by soldiers. All of a sudden, this guy you think is dead is now talking to you from the sky. I don't know that we quite grasp what that must have been like for Paul. 
The shock that must have been for him. And so here Jesus is saying, I'm Jesus, the one who's persecuting you. I don't think he knew who it was at first. He knew something supernatural was happening because you don't just mosey down the road on a horse and all of a sudden this bright blinding light from the heavens, probably accompanied by noise, knocks you off the horse, knocks all of you down, face down. He had to assume this is some supernatural event, but no clue that this was the dead guy Jesus talking to him. And so he asks, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appealed to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now you do see a bit of sovereignty here where... Christ says, I've chosen you for this purpose. And the Lord does get what he wants. But again, we're going to see that Paul makes the choice to obey. He's going to make that clear. So this declaration here, or this event, this encounter here, is that Paul was going to become a minister and a witness for Jesus Christ. That's the new mission. We're told here that he's going to go out and open the eyes of the Jews and the Gentiles. He's going to lead them from darkness into light. He's going to move them from the domain of Satan into the domain of God. He's going to make it possible for them to receive forgiveness for their sins. He's going to make it possible for them to inherit the very things that were promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the the, um, fathers of Israel, all through faith in Jesus Christ. That's Paul's new mission. So he goes from one mission to another. One from his own imagination, his own heart, to one where the Lord calls him and assigns him. And so this encounter that Paul has drastically changes his life. And here he is, standing before these Greeks, standing before Agrippa and Bernice, making it clear that I went from not just being a faithful Jew, but a persecutor, to now somebody whose life was radically changed because of this encounter that I had with the one that I was persecuting. He's giving an explanation for his behavior, is he not? He's not denied anything. He's not just defending his actions. He's basically saying, this is who I am and why I do what I do. He goes on and he makes a fourth declaration. And that's that he was now simply living in obedience to the call of Jesus. To preach specifically what the prophets and Moses had already declared. Again, it goes back to being a faithful Jew. His faithfulness initially was somewhat misguided. His heart was in the right place, but his actions were misguided. He didn't fully comprehend the Old Testament promises. He didn't fully comprehend that Jesus was who exactly who he claimed to be. And we now see here, his faithfulness will now be reflected in his obedience to the call of Jesus Christ. That is at the heart and soul of his life. Look at verses 19 through 23. It's a big chunk. We'll read it. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient. <laughs> Again, some understatement there. I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. 
For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me, in, put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both the small and great, um, saying, or stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. What a testimony. Paul basically says, I'm being obedient to Jesus Christ by preaching simply what the prophets and Moses already taught. Notice he did it immediately. Paul's obedience, and this is, this is I might have needed some recovery time. I might have been thinking, wow, now, wait a minute. I got a reputation uphold here. I was known for all this. Now I'm going to go out and do the opposite? They're going to they're gonna hate me for this. I know people who were hated by their own family after coming to Christ and how difficult that is. And Paul had to know that. He probably was praised. He was gaining popularity because of his mission of destroying the Jews. He had all the support of the chief priests and the other Pharisees and the Sadducees to go out and to persecute these Christians. He got letters from them, encouragement from them. And now he's going to turn his back on all of that. And yet, he obeys immediately. In fact, he starts right there in Damascus. He says he testified both to small and to great. And again, nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. He goes on to say that it's all about Christ, that he would suffer, but that by reason of his resurrection, the Jews and the Gentiles would ultimately receive forgiveness of sins. What's our takeaway from these four declarations? I'm going to ask one very simple question. How would you explain your life? If you were in a similar situation to Paul, would you explain your life the same way Paul did? You know, I, I was fairly faithful as a good Catholic when I was being raised. I thought I loved God. I was misguided, though, only because I didn't know about the personal relationship necessary. I thought just being Catholic was enough. Would you say that your life would be characterized by your hope in the promises of God? Is that what defines you? Paul did. He said, it's my hope in the resurrection. That's who defined me. Because of that, that I was being persecuted. Think about as we face additional growing persecution here in the United States. Is our response going to be, yeah, I'm being tried, I'm being uh, persecuted because I believe in the hope of God's promises. Would you say that your life has been shaped or changed because of your encounter with Jesus Christ? One of my favorite statements by Earl Rodmacher, who was the president of Western Seminary, he said, too many Christians get saved and stuck. Their lives aren't drastically changed. But Jesus Christ said you must be born again. There has to be a change that takes place when you encounter Jesus Christ. And Paul clearly experienced that. And here he is before Agrippa and Bernice and all the Romans saying, my life was drastically changed when I met Jesus Christ. You want to know why I went out on your behalf and I persecuted, but now I'm promoting Christ? It's because I was drastically changed when I finally met him. The same should be true of us. Lastly, can you confidently say that you've been obedient to the call of Jesus Christ? Paul warned that an apostasy would happen as we approach the end times within the church. I'm not saying we're there yet, but we already see that. We see many churches compromising on convictions and biblical truths, not being willing to stand up because they don't want the heat of what's thrown at them. They don't want to be part of cancel culture. They don't want to be kicked off Twitter. They don't want to be called bigots or any number of other things. We already see that happening. And we're not facing that much pressure. Can you imagine when the pressure gets significantly more? Paul says, I'm obedient. That's it. What happens after this? This gets interesting. So Paul, 
now actually is going to get to interact directly with Festus and Agrippa. How did they respond to Paul's declarations here? Look at verse 24. Well, obviously one of them had a problem with what Paul was saying, verse 24, while Paul was saying this, in other words, he wasn't quite finished yet, while he was saying this, in his defense, Festus, the governor, said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. In other words, Paul, you're nuts. Now, why would he say this? Remember, the Greeks didn't believe in resurrection. This indicates to me that Festus clearly understood what Paul was saying. He understood Paul's testimony. That's something else we should probably be sure of. Those around us ought to know exactly who we are and what we stand for, and this was the case here with Paul, even when they may disagree with us. And so here, Festus says, Paul, you're nuts, man. All this great education you have, that has driven you nuts. You are mad. Why? Because he disagreed with resurrection. All Greeks knew that that was not a reality. So Festus interrupts Paul, calls him mad. Paul's response is what we'd expect. No, I'm not crazy. Look at verses 25 through 26. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Felix or Festus. I utter words of sober truth, real truth. In fact, then he does something rather interesting here. It's rather brilliant. He decides to drag King Agrippa into it now. Try to make him an ally of sorts. For the king, Agrippa, he knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Basically what Paul is saying is, Festus, Agrippa knows what I'm talking about. Agrippa may very well have heard about my testimony. He knew Paul. Agrippa had, he was a king of the area. He knew about this, this Paul do going around spreading Christianity. So he was aware of those matters. But he was also aware of what the prophets had preached and taught. He may not have believed it, We're going to get to that in a second. But Paul's basically saying, Agrippa, he knows about these things. He knows the Old Testament. He knows that I'm not crazy. He knows about resurrection. And in some respects, it's almost a subtle way of calling out Agrippa saying, you should know these things. Have you ever done that before? Looked at somebody. They might not believe what you say. Come on, I know you believe this. I know you've got to see this. And yet, maybe they really don't. And so Paul is brilliant here in the way that he does this. He was a master at language and words, but he's basically answering the question, no, I'm not nuts, and Agrippa ought to know it. What does he do next? He now turns his attention directly to King Agrippa and begins to talk directly to him, verses 27 through 29. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these change. Now that's about as bold as you can get. Paul made his case for Jesus being the one that God had promised through Moses and the prophets. Remember, this is probably just a summary on Luke's part. There were probably much more that Paul actually said. He might have gone into more detail about the prophets. He might have even quoted them. But he kind of backs Agrippa into a corner here. Agrippa is supposed to be a scholar in the law. And Paul says, don't you believe what the prophets wrote? This is why Agrippa probably doesn't answer the question. Notice what Agrippa does. He poses his own question back to Paul. In fact, with the exception of the New American Standard and then the King James and the New King James, most English translations treat Agrippa's words as a question, not a statement. Now, we'd love to see it as a statement. You're going to persuade me to become a Christian. I'm almost there, Paul. Keep talking. But that's unlikely what happened. 
Most other English translations more appropriately translate this as a question. What he was saying was more likely, do you think that you can convince me in such a short time, Paul? And there's some going all the details, but there's the problem with the Greek text is it doesn't put a question mark after questions. You have to use the context and structure and some other things to be able to determine what's a question and what's not. And again, more, most scholars believe this is more of a question, not a statement. Part of it's because of the way that Paul responded. Notice what he says. I wish, I would, I wish to God that it's whether in a short time or a long time that not only you, but all those who hear me this day, all the Greeks in this room, I wish that they could become as I am. In other words, a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, with the exception of one thing, the chains, the persecution. That's partly why, again, it's probably more of a question, because Paul responds by saying, yes, I do, I wish that I could persuade you in a short time, or even a long time, whatever it takes. I wish I could persuade you to become a follower of Jesus. That's the hope. I love this about Paul. It reveals his passion, his love for Jesus Christ, but his desire to convert others, that others might come to Christ. And again, he's standing here, he's fighting for his life. He could ultimately face the death penalty, but his heart is still that others might come to know Jesus Christ. I go back again to us when we're persecuted. Is it just to escape that? Is it just to, we didn't have to go to prison or we didn't have to get fined? Or is it looking at those that are doing that to us and saying, I wish, I hope that what's happening right now to me and the platform I now have to present my testimony might ultimately lead those of you that are doing this to become just like me, a follower of Jesus Christ. I love that about Paul. I would love that if that were the case with me. I hope and pray to God that it is if I'm ever in a similar situation. That my focus would be loving my enemies and hoping that they become just like me and loving Christ. Let's wrap this up. King Agrippa agrees that Paul ultimately hasn't done anything wrong, hasn't violated Roman law. Look at verses 30 through 31, or 32. The king stood up and along with Governor and Bernice and those who are sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man ought to have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. It's funny is that Festus still doesn't get his answer. Still got his dilemma. He ultimately sends Paul on his way, sends him on to Rome. What's our takeaway with this? And we'll wrap this up. Paul's testimony before Festus and Agrippa was built on two things primarily. One was his personal encounter with Jesus Christ. That was at the heart and center of what Paul just testified to. His personal encounter with Jesus Christ. It changed his life. I don't think we should underestimate our own personal testimony. That ought to be the heart and soul of our testimony to those around us is, what happened when I met Jesus? I often use it as I'm sharing people that I met Christ in college. I make a point of bringing that up. I make a point of bringing up my past. Hey, I was raised in a a religious home. But you know what? Something happened. I met Jesus Christ in college. That becomes the heart and soul of my testimony. It is powerful when we do that. And it was powerful when, when Paul did that as well. So we can't underestimate the power of that being our own testimony. People get all flustered sometimes. I don't know how to share the gospel. Tell them about what Jesus did for you. Tell them about your past, how Christ changed you, and how you're now living in obedience to him. That's the gospel. The second thing, and I harp on this all the time, you notice how Paul relied on the scriptures? He mentions the prophets. He mentions Moses. That is Paul's pattern. The reason for that is, he didn't expect Agrippa to just simply believe him. He expected him to believe what the prophets had wrote. What the Bible says, we're often told that relying too heavily on the scriptures is a put-off, it's a mistake, 
You can't do that. Most people don't believe it. Think about this for a second. Who made up the majority of this audience? Greeks. It wasn't Jews. Paul didn't shy away from that. They didn't accept the scriptures as the word of God. Most of them wouldn't have been familiar with it. But Paul still referred to, the, to Moses and the prophets, not just because of King Agrippa. It's because Paul understood that the most powerful witnessing tool he had was what God had said and promised in the scriptures. It ought to be the same for us, too. We shouldn't shy away from that. When people say we shouldn't quote the word or talk about the Bible when witnessing, they're wrong. The scriptures tell us that it's the only way to enlighten the eyes, to discern one's fault, to acquit us of our hidden faults, to prevent presumptuous sin, and ultimately lead us to forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Amen?